0: It's Monday, April 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams says this week will be one of the hardest and saddest for Americans as we continue to fight our way through the coronavirus pandemic. The next two weeks are critical as experts say multiple states will hit the peak of cases of COVID-19. Several governors are also in a tight situation trying to acquire the proper supplies for their states as the national stockpile of equipment is almost depleted, and they are pleading with the federal government to take a bigger lead in helping. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, joins us for this and also how Joe Biden continues to campaign during this crisis. Next, while we brace ourselves to make it through this time right now, the scientific community around the world is in a race to develop a vaccine for COVID-19. There are currently at least 43 different vaccines in development around the world, but the process remains slow. While many things have changed about how to develop vaccines, such as being able to target the DNA and RNA of the viruses in quick fashion, the rest of the process, testing in humans and also manufacturing for wide use, remains very slow. That is why we might still be a year away from an effective vaccine. Samanth Subramanian, contributor to The Guardian Longreads, joins us for the work behind the race to develop a coronavirus vaccine. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This is going to be the hardest and the saddest week of most Americans' lives, quite frankly. This is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment, our 9-11 moment, only it's not going to be localized. It's going to be happening all over the country, and I want America to understand that. But I also want them to understand that the public, along with the state and the federal government, have the power to change the trajectory of this epidemic. Joining us now is Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. Thanks for joining us, Steph. Thanks for having me. We wanna continue talking about coronavirus and the US response to all of this. Recently, the US Surgeon General Jerome Adams said that this week is gonna be the hardest and saddest week for most Americans' lives because as these cases, confirmed cases and, uh, and deaths come, it's not a localized thing. This pandemic is hitting all over the country at the same time. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing right now is the warnings are getting a lot stronger from all of the officials.
1: Yeah, it really is. Um, hearing the Surgeon General even compare this upcoming week to Pearl Harbor or 9-11, um, moments that have totally changed the way we live our lives and some of the most traumatic moments in U.S. history is pretty striking. And as he said, it's because we're not seeing this just in one city or one state, but really across the nation watching as people are getting sick and hospitals are struggling to keep up with the number of cases that they're having to deal with, fights over resources and all of these things. And of course, it's important to note that while we will have many states kind of reaching their peak this week, there are still other states that won't even be at their peak yet. So even places like Virginia, Maryland, some of these other states won't even be near their peak yet this week even as places like New York and Connecticut and New Jersey and other places are. So this is going to be a prolonged thing, even if this week is one of the most devastating weeks. It's going to still be a long time before we move past this.
0: I mean, yeah, that's a great point, because when we're talking a lot about this, we, a, a lot of times we're thinking about New York just because they're the hardest hit state in this whole process. And we're seeing the most amount of cases there, the most amount of deaths we're hoping that they hit their apex this week but you're right there's other states that still have that yet to come and this is all amid obviously we're doing this social distancing 90 percent of americans are on these stay-at-home orders right now um Mm -hmm. i wanted to talk about this ap report that came out that basically said that the u.s wasted months before preparing for this pandemic they reviewed a bunch of federal purchasing contracts And it really wasn't until mid-March that they started to place big bulk orders for these N95 masks that we need, the ventilators, and a lot of this other equipment, all this PPE, personal protective equipment, that the healthcare workers need.
1: The report from the AP does point out that the U.S. was pretty slow to respond to the concerns about coronavirus. And all you have to do is to go back and watch some of the statements that um, President Trump and even other public health officials were making at the start of the year compared to the statements they're making now about the severity of this virus. It was something that the U.S. officials just didn't really take seriously, didn't think it would ever get this bad. Part of that was also lack of communication from China. Of course, China was not being up front with Just how devastating the virus was in the communities there but yeah we there was wasted time and it's you know somewhat haunting to look back and realize that if the government had taken more action early on and begin begun to grow the stockpile um whether we would be in a better situation right now
0: yeah i mean it's it's really a tough situation nobody can predict when that pandemic will hit but exactly. what happened though, you know, the data wasn't there and boom, we're un- caught unprepared with all this stuff. And that leads us into some statements that Jared Kushner made at one of the press conferences talking about the federal stockpile of equipment that we have in the supplies. And, you know, mm-hmm. he said, Hey, uh, this federal stockpile is ours. You know, it's not for the States. The States should have been doing their own purchasing and, and stockpiling. And, and that made a lot of governors across the country really angry. It's like, no, this is the job of the federal government to lead, to help the states when they need it. And, and that's what the federal stockpile was made to do, to help bridge these gaps.
1: Exactly, we are certainly seeing kind of a, a messaging war right now between many governors and the federal government, you know, people like Jared Kushner and even the president himself who has backed Jared Kushner's statements on this issue where the federal government is saying, look, states, you should have been ready, you should have been prepared, you should have been stockpiling. We can't just provide everything you need from the federal stockpile. Well, on the other hand, many governors are saying, look, this is the job of the federal government to be prepared for these sorts of these sort of situations. The federal government is supposed to come behind state governments and help them when we're in emergencies and crises like this. The Illinois governor made this exact argument, saying there's a reason that we have the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and it's to allow for preparedness for these exact situations
0: i wanted to transition briefly over to former vice president joe biden and the race for the 2020 election it's tough for uh joe biden to remain in the news to remain in the public eye when there's no uh rallies there's no campaign activity really other than being online and you contrast that with the president on tv every single day the Democratic convention has already been postponed. They might have to do a mm-hmm. virtual convention because, you know, to get thousands and thousands of people together will be a problem. And he also said that he's going to start searching for a vice president, something that excited a lot of people because he committed to choosing a woman as his running mate.
1: It's certainly crazy how little attention there is on the 2020 presidential race right now. He has been struggling to get the attention from the public, and especially as you pointed out, compared to President Trump, who's able to stand in front of the American public every day with his briefings and having the opportunity to present himself as a leader in crisis, which is something that in some cases can really help presidential candidates to win over voters and of course some you know are not happy with the way the president has been hold, has been running this but you know it's certainly a challenge for people like Biden when he can't campaign he can't be rallying he can't be meeting people in person but i think his decision for a vice president could be a really crucial moment to gain more support and we're is something we're certainly watching to see how he diversifies his campaign and reaches out to, to maybe a younger, more progressive Democratic audience.
0: Yeah. And in this look for vice president, he said he's looking for somebody that could lead for the next four presidential cycles. He's looking and even beyond that to his cabinet, looking for mm-hmm. younger people to be involved there that can be on the scene for many years to come. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: What scientists have learned to do is to take short snatches of the genetic material of the bacteria or the virus itself, which, you know, has the instructions coded to produce these toxins or these protein shells and so on, and put the genetic material directly into a vaccine and use our cells, our bodies as factories for making these molecules.
0: Joining us now is Samanth Subramanian, contributor to The Guardian Long Read's Thanks for joining us, Samanth.
2: Happy to be here. I
0: wanted to continue talking about coronavirus, COVID-19. And one of the things that everybody is racing for to get completed is a vaccine. We've been told for a while now, since this whole pandemic started, that it was going to take 12 to 18 months, something like that, to really get an effective vaccine. And because it just takes a long time, the human trials, the studying of it takes a long time. What has changed is actually... Being able to get vaccine candidates, that's changed, and it's much much quicker than it's been in the past. Currently, there's at least forty three COVID nineteen vaccines in development around the world, and everybody's racing to do this. There's one vaccine that was made in sixty three days by the American biotech firm named Moderna, and they're actually doing human trials already. Those started on March sixteenth. So, Samanth, tell us a little bit about the vaccine making process and how it's changed over the years as well.
2: Well, so uh, the vaccine, you know, the principle of vaccination hasn't changed at all, right? I mean, the idea is to get um, your immune system to recognize a virus or a bacteria without actually making you sick. So what they used to do earlier was they used to weaken a virus or a bacteria and they would introduce that into your body and your immune system would recognize it and it would generate all these antibodies that tend to stay in your system. So the body learns to fight this germ and then when you actually get infected with a, with a full-strength strain of this pathogen, uh, your body can fight it off. It has all these antibodies and T-cells, and you can fight these pathogens. So that's how they used to do it earlier. And that was the case for you know most of the 20th century. They would uh, take these viruses or these bacteria, and they would put them in cell cultures, tissue cultures, and labs, and they would try to weaken these strains. And sometimes it was a really tricky process to do. I mean, it's very difficult if you aren't quite... Um, you know, in possession of the kind of sensitive equipment that we have right now. The first step forward from that was when scientists realized that, look, you don't have to put the entire virus into a body. Uh, You can just put a part of the virus or a part of the bacteria into the body and the antibodies will still be generated. So they would take like some molecules of a particular toxin that a bacteria would release or they would take a part of the shell on the outside that the bacteria or the virus have And they would introduce these molecules into our bodies. And that's, you know, already sort of thousands of times smaller than the bacteria or the virus itself, which are tiny. And then what's happened over the last few years, and really, I mean, you know, this has been developing for a while, but genetic technology has only come up to a particular speed and efficiency and power over the last few years, is that instead of making these Molecules, you know, the toxin or the protein shell on the outside, instead of making them in labs or in factories, what scientists have learned to do is to take short snatches of the genetic material of the bacteria or the virus itself, which, you know, has the instructions coded to produce these toxins or these. Protein shells and so on, and put the genetic material directly into a vaccine and use our cells, our bodies as factories for making these molecules. So you've gone from introducing the whole pathogen to introducing a part of the pathogen to now introducing the genetic material that codes for a part of the pathogen. So you're just putting the gene, you know, you're synthesizing these genes outside in a lab and you're putting those genes into your body. Now, I should mention that this last bit. Uh, the vaccines that use DNA or RNA, these genetic material vaccines, you know, these are completely unproven. You know, they've they've right. been sort of tested in labs. Um, there's been a couple of human trials, but we haven't ever had a real world vaccine out there that works on this principle yet. So it's really fast to do, but we still don't know whether it's going to work if it will go through human trials and succeed and get out on the market for all of us to use.
0: And that's one of the interesting parts about this is that, as you were mentioning beforehand, scientists had to use parts of the actual virus. They were dealing with that organism there. And now a lot of this stuff is being done on computer modeling. After China released the full genome of the coronavirus of COVID-19, scientists were immediately getting onto it to start seeing what they can do, what they could use to try to make effective vaccines for it.
2: Because sequencing the genome of a small organism like a bacteria or a virus virus is now so quick, you know they have that. They had that online in like mid January, and as I say in my story, I mean that's sort of like a starter pistol for all these scientists everywhere to look at this genome and try to understand what parts of this virus uh, they might want to introduce into our body, and what parts of the genome code for those sections of the virus, these subunits of the virus, and so really that that's the You know, that's the powerhouse beginning to this entire process. And then, as you say, quite rightly, I mean, a lot of the work happens on computers right up until they actually synthesize these genes. Everything's happening online. All this modeling is happening with software. And then they get these genes back and then they start to deal with real world testing on mice and other animals.
0: And this is the part that takes obviously the longest part now. We're just talking about how quickly now they can get this candidates, they can figure something out, but the real world testing, the human trials and then the manufacturing of this, this is the slow part. So when people say hey, 12 to 18 months, this is the bulk of the time right there.
2: Both of these things are slow. So human trials can only proceed at the lay, at the rate of human physiology, right? We can't speed our systems up to react quicker or slower to give scientists results. So it has to go just as slow as as it'll go. Um, but, the, but the problem also is human physiology is so complicated. Uh, we can test these vaccines as much as we want on computers or in mice, but when it comes to putting something into a human body, it's impossible to predict the kind of uh, side effects it'll have, what kind of dosage will work, whether it'll work at all. You know, it's impossible to predict all of this stuff. So that take, takes time. And then the second part of it is just sort of economics in a sense. It's business. Uh, You need a big drug company with the equipment and factories and so on to manufacture these huge doses of vaccines. But very often companies don't want to touch vaccines unless they're sure there's like a profit margin in there for them. So if they, you know, if we come through human trials for this vaccine, say by January next year, let's assume, I don't know if that's the right time scale, but, you know, by that time, Coronavirus everywhere around the world might have shrunk. The pandemic won't quite be as virulent as it is now. And so companies at that point might look at this and say, well, you know, we don't want to touch this as a product. I mean, right. there's not many people who need to be vaccinated. Most of the world has immunity to it. So what, what's going to happen then? We have no way of knowing. So there's so many moving parts in both how complex human physiology is and in the economics of this. That's why it's going to take 12 to 18 months if we're lucky for a vaccine to be out on the market.
0: And we know that's true because it's happened before. There were vaccines in the process for SARS when that was going around. And because by the time they were getting around to getting something that was viable, everything had calmed down with SARS. So funding for that stuff dried up very quickly. So I'm hoping this might be a different case because there's a lot more eyes on this. It's this whole big thing that everybody's kind of paying attention to. So hopefully it's different, but we've gone through this process before. Some of the experts have said that for the cost of this vaccine to produce and manufacture enough to maybe beat a pandemic, it could be about $3 billion. But, you know, as you mentioned, everything is constantly changing with all of this. For this story, you actually spoke to a Canadian pathologist. His name is Jonathan Heaney. He works with a company who's also working on a possible vaccine. What can you tell us about their work and, you know, what you're learning from them?
2: Heaney's company, which is called DioSynvax, is based here in Cambridge, England, where I live. And, you know, it's just uh, the strangeness of the world right now that they're about a 12-minute bicycle ride from where I live. And I was unable to visit because, you know, he can't take the risk of outsiders coming in, possibly carrying a virus and in, infecting his staff, infecting him. So we had to speak on Zoom, on, like, video conference, mm-hmm. uh, even though he's so close to where I live. And they, you know, like a lot of other... Uh, labs and universities and, you know, companies around the world. They started work as soon as genome was published on January 12th or just after. Um, What they're doing is kind of different. I think it's more ambitious. Uh, They're trying to build this vaccine that will not just work against this uh, coronavirus disease, COVID-19, but also against, uh, you know, many members of the family of coronaviruses. You know, so SARS, for example, was caused by a coronavirus as well. And so their idea is to uh, get this vaccine uh, to replicate within us the production of uh, common parts of all these viruses. So every virus has something called a spike protein uh, on the outside of the shell. So they'll make maybe, you know, the va- vaccine will come into the human body and it will make a part of the spike protein that is common across all these coronaviruses. Maybe it will make two or three out of four other sections of the same uh, viruses, so there's two or three or four common elements floating around, and the theory is that the antibodies that our body releases will then be able to eventually work against all of these coronaviruses. And this is his thing, right? He needs thing is he has this platform where he uh, he's done this for phyloviruses, so um, West Nile virus, for example, uh, that disease is caused by caused by a phylovirus, phylo and he has a platform for that. He's working on a universal flu vaccine, which will hopefully work against every kind of flu out there. So that's his that's his big M.O. And, uh, you know, I mean, as I as he says, it's early days. They're still doing trials on mice. Uh, and he you know, he says quite clearly that the vaccine field has this graveyard full of dead vaccine candidates. So he's quite realistic about his chances. But it's a it's an ambitious thing to try for. And I I, I had a great time talking to him.
0: Samanth Subramanian, contributor to The Guardian Long Reads. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.